Radio Mano Papachango. Yes, I'm in Healdsburg, California, after spending a week camping in the van, sort of a shakedown cruise, I guess they call it, in the boating world, where you do a short trip before you go out on your long trip, just to make sure that uh, your engine isn't failing and your mast isn't cracked and you don't have any leaks. Um, That's sort of what we did. We picked up a friend here in Healdsburg and went up to... Where'd we go? We sort of, we had a bit of an adventure. We were off for a week. Um, first night we uh, drove down a logging road in Mendocino, uh, studiously ignoring the no trespassing signs. I mean, my feeling was the no trespassing signs were saying, don't go into these woods. And of course it's just owned by some fucking logging company and they don't want you in there because if a branch falls on your head, I guess you could sue the logging company for not having um, made the forest free of all falling branches or something. So I kind of assume there's, um, you know, a pact where like, I'm not going to sue you if something happens to me when I'm camping on your land and you're not going to really come and hassle me for camping on your land for a night or two. I don't know if that's mutually agreed upon. It's one of those unspoken agreements, you know, like the kind that many couples have where uh, they assume that, you know, we're both cheating and we're not going to talk about it. And, uh, you know, if, if push came to shove, we would understand generally a really bad idea to enter into a marriage with that kind of an agreement just ask tiger woods um anyway it turns out it's not such a good agreement to have when you go camping either because uh we went back some road and and there were no we went off the main logging road through a gate over a bridge up a mountain Lots of uh, curving around, and we came around out into this field, this beautiful meadow, and there's a picnic table and a fire ring and a bunch of wood piled up, and it's absolutely beautiful. There's some deer over on the hillside opposite. We're like, fuck yeah, this is it. We pull up, and we set up the tent, and we get out our folding chairs, and, and then this guy drives by in a pickup truck and he stops and says, Hey, I say, Hey, how you doing? He says, uh, who are you? I said, I'm Chris famous podcast host. (laughs) I didn't say that. Um, he says, uh, are you friends with the tailors? I said, no, he said, well, you're camping on their land. I said, I am? I thought this was Forest Service land. He said, nope. And I just shut the gate, so you're locked in. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, 
So um, I apologize profusely and claimed ignorance, which it turns out I'm relatively convincing at. And, um, you know, just play the, the city boy lost in the woods routine. And, uh, so they came and let us out, uh, took us back down to the gate and let us out, which was very nice of them. Uh, I'm not sure how, what we would have done in the morning if we had found that gate closed, but in any case, uh, yeah. So the first night or two, uh, were kind of rough. Uh, I don't remember. We ended up by some river somewhere and then some guy came out at seven in the morning yelling at us and I was just not glamorous. And then, uh, but we eventually went up around Lassen uh, and found some beautiful spots. One was next to a lake, another was next to a stream in National Forest Land and uh, just hung out set up a slack line that uh, a listener uh, sent me. Really nice. Uh, a dude who does slack lining. I posted a photo of him. He was like a thousand feet up wearing a civilized to death shirt walking across the slack line. Uh, anyway, he, he sent me the slack line and uh, set it up for the first time between a couple of trees, obviously. And, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I'm looking forward to, to getting better at that this summer. Uh, seems like appropriate exercise for a lazy old guy. You know, I'm I'm going to fall, what, six inches or something. I, I don't think it's going to be a major problem. Um, and it's good kind of core workout. So I'm looking forward to that. And um, yeah, so had a good time. Now we're back in Healdsburg dropping our friend off and, uh, we're going to see some other people in the Bay area. And then we're heading off for the big summer trip up to Montana, Idaho in that region. So if you're up there somewhere and, uh, want to say hi, drop me a line. Maybe we'll be coming through your town and buy you a beer or something. Uh, this episode is a special episode that, uh, was recorded with my buddy Kyle Tierman as co-host. Uh, the guest is a guy named Dacker Keltner. He is someone I've written about in both of my books. Um, and I didn't mention this to him because I didn't want to you know, make him uncomfortable, but I have reached out to him several times trying to get him on the podcast and I never got a response. And so we were hanging out in Crestone a couple of weeks ago and Kyle was there and he he was like yeah i'm gonna record a podcast today with this guy named dacker keltner i'm like what the how did you get dacker keltner on your podcast he's like oh you know hunter motts knows him and blah 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 uh and i was like i love that guy i love his research he's amazing and kyle being the sweet generous soul that he is said well why don't you sit in on it we'll we'll interview him together and no problem we can co-release it so kyle's episode came out uh, a couple days ago when i was in the woods um we had agreed to uh simultaneously release our our episodes on wednesday today's friday um but anyway, it doesn't matter. He gets a, a bit of a head start. If you've already listened to Kyle's episode, you might want to skip this one um, since it's exactly the same thing. Um, but Dr. Keltner is a psychologist uh, at UC Berkeley. He is a fascinating dude, super smart guy. Uh, he directs the Berkeley Social Interaction Lab, 
um, and his work is basically around the actually his his work does a lot of the same has a lot of the same focus as my own um the difference is that he's doing research and i'm uh using his research to make my arguments uh in the books um but he's you know actually doing the real work you've probably heard me talk about the research where um a, a person is positioned at a crosswalk and they monitor which cars stop and which don't to let the person cross the street and what they find is that the more expensive the car the less likely they are to stop and let the person cross the street another one of my favorite uh, bits of research that happens to have been done by Dacker and his crew is uh, when they pick a couple of people to play Monopoly and uh, they explain to them at the beginning that one of you is going to have huge advantages. One of you gets two die, uh, dice, for example. The other only gets one. Uh, every time the guy with two dice passes go, he gets $300. And every time the other person passes go, they get $100 and so on. So they get all these advantages. And um, keep in mind what's going on right now with uh, Black Lives Matter while I explain this research to you. So they get all these structural advantages and then they play the game. And of course, the person with all the advantages wins, right? And uh, then at the end, they interview them and talk about, okay, so what just happened? And the person who won tends to talk about their strategy, Right. Like, well, I knew if I if I got these two properties and then I, you know, would save them, put a house there and then I did this and then I built it. They don't talk about the fact that they had every fucking advantage going into it. They talk about their strategy. They talk about the good moves they made and the interesting decisions. How many wealthy people do you know who talk about how hard they worked? to get wealthy as if poor people don't work hard as if a single mother with three jobs trying to pay childcare so she can go and work for $12 an hour when she's paying $10 an hour for childcare like she isn't working hard right that's why she's not rich because she didn't work hard enough or the black people who uh you know I don't know why black people have problems they just should work harder they should go to college I went to college I worked hard to get where I am as if there are no structural impediments historical and current that are preventing that are designed to prevent people from certain people from succeeding in America Oh, the problem with black people is the fathers don't stick around. That's the problem. Too many single-parent households. Why don't the fathers stick around, I wonder? Are there laws that make it impossible for men to stick around if they have any sort of um, criminal record? Yes, there are. Uh, I don't, I don't remember the specifics and I'm not going to get into it, but there are 
laws that would um, cut um, support payments to a mother if the man lives in the house. Um, so the laws are specifically designed to keep the man out of the house. And you might say, oh, but he has a record. Why does he have a record? Well, could that have something to do with the fact that there are no fucking jobs in inner cities, in most of the places where lower class black people live? Could it have something to do with the fact that there's discrimination to stop them from getting the jobs that are even exist? Um, you know, we could, I could talk about this forever. But anyway, the point is the person with the advantages, whether they're racial or class or physical, they don't tend to say, I succeeded because of all these advantages I was born with. They tend to say, I succeeded because I worked hard, because I put in the time, because I did my 10,000 hours or whatever it is. Um, and interestingly, I mean, that's one interesting insight from that research, but then they added another thing, which I thought was so brilliant. They put a, a bowl of pretzels on the table while the, the people are playing the Monopoly and they observe the way that the players interact with this bowl of pretzels, right? So maybe we call this the natural world. Um, you know, we can call it lots of things. Um, the one who's winning, the one with all the advantages, tends to eat more of the pretzels. And if when grabbing a bunch of pretzels from the bowl, some of them fall on the floor, the one who is winning tends to be less likely to pick up the pretzels that fell on the floor. Really interesting insights into the way the brain works and you know, Docker and I uh, talked a bit about Civilized to Death, specifically the section called Rich Asshole Syndrome, where I used his research to make the argument that people become assholes because they're rich, because that's how the mind works, because we have this intellectual or, or better said, emotional scar tissue that develops as a way to allow us to continue to function with these gross inequities in opportunity and access to resources, which are deeply inhuman and disturbing to us, no matter which side of the ledger we're on, right? That's, that's the point of what I was trying to say. And it's supported by a lot of the research that Dacker and his colleagues have done, that it is traumatic to have significantly more or significantly less than the people around us. That's not a human way to live. Anyway, uh, thank you to Dacker for finding time. He's a very busy guy and um, it's very cool that he made himself available for this and, and the, he and Kyle let me sit in on this conversation. I really enjoyed it and I trust that you will too. Um, I'm also, as soon as I finish this, I'm going to do a video Roma for the people who subscribe to the podcast through my website, chrisryanphd.com, tangentiallyspeaking.com, thatchrisryan.com. All roads lead to the mountaintop. Um, yeah. And you can, uh, 
the the lowest level is two bucks a month. It's a gift thing. I'm not giving you anything particular in exchange. If you subscribe, you have access to everything, whether you're subscribing at a two buck a month uh, level or a 20 buck a month level, you have access to the video Romas where I answer questions that people um, send in through the, the forum on the website. Uh, you also have access to all the eBooks, the tangentially reading, uh, tangentially talking sex, tangentially talking drugs and whatever is coming uh, next. And uh, I don't remember what other swag or or thank you gifts are available there, but whatever, it's all available to everyone, um, you know, as low as little as two bucks a month. All right. Thank you for listening. Uh, and I will be back with you soon. Um, I'm going to leave you with a song. This is a song. I don't know if it's sappy or... I don't know how, you know, what I'm exposing in myself when I tell you that I really like this song. Three Dog Night was the first band, um, the first album I ever bought for myself was Three Dog Night's Greatest Hits. I was probably 11, maybe something like that. And, um, yeah, I, I was really into Three Dog Night for a while. Now, you probably, most of you, have no idea who Three Dog Night were, was. I never know what to do with band names. Do you say the Beatles is the best band or the Beatles are the best band? Because band is singular, but Beatles is plural. I don't know. At that, I've never figured that out. All those years of teaching English, you'd think I'd know that. But one of many things I don't know. Um, also politics confuses me as a word. Politics is criminal. Politics are, it ends in S. It seems like a plural, but I think it's singular. Anyway, three dog night band. I think it was the band. If you've seen a movie called almost famous, which if you have not added to your list, it's one of the best movies ever. Um, but I think the band in Almost Famous is modeled after Three Dog Night. I think that's the actual band that Cameron Crowe went on tour with when he was a kid. Um, anyway, you probably heard um, Mama Told Me Not To Come, meaning to the party. Uh, one is the loneliest number. They had, they had a bunch of hits. Shambhala. Um someone was a bullfrog was a good friend of mine. I forget the name of that song. Anyway, uh, black and white. Oh, I should have played that song. That'll be a good song. I'll play that sometime. That's a song about racism. Anyway, this song is called out in the country. It's kind of sappy. It's about like, you know, getting away from the city and finding the peace out in the country. And it's just a song that's resonating with me right now because, I'm basically going to visit Stanley Krippner and uh, a couple other people in the Bay Area, and then I'm headed for the mountains for the summer, as I said, up to Idaho, Montana. So I'm I'm looking forward to getting out in the country. So that's why I'm playing this song. Three Dog Night. I don't know where they are now, if they're alive, uh, if they're still playing music. I kind of doubt it, but uh, they were big in the 70s. I hope you're doing well, and I will be back with you 
as soon as I can get around a microphone and some Wi-Fi. Take care. sensitive so dacker are you coming from berkeley right now yeah i'm in my home my new work spot i was um i i sent you that email um and figured we'd start off with awe um my interest in surfing um and you being at berkeley i think I, i sent you that quote which is that um there's the big wave mavericks and when it's going off the richter scale at berkeley registers the movement pretty cool yeah that is awesome so you're focused on awe right now tell me a little bit about that well um 
You know, I, uh, in my lab, the Berkeley Social Interaction Lab, we work from uh, the perspective that we've evolved a set of emotions that help us adapt to the environment and fold into social communities and survive and do well. Uh, and early in the, the field, people focused on fight or flight emotions like anger and fear, and we know a lot about those. And they'd really, like scientists, had really un left untouched these really interesting spaces of emotion like gratitude and awe and ecstasy and joy. Um, and I, you know, the reason that I study it is in part, um, I was really lucky to be raised by parents. You know, my mom's a teaches literature, my dad's an artist who are like, get out in the wild, swim in the Pacific ocean, let's go camping, let's drive a VW bus through the Colorado Rockies. And I was just raised on awe, you know, and then um, heading into my career, you know, once it was established, I had developed the scientific tools and the background to um, to study this amazing emotion that mystics have been writing about for thousands of years that <clears throat> had a very prominent role in the Age of Enlightenment and Romanticism in the 18th century. I mean, it's it's foundational to everything, and science really hadn't studied it, so we got into the game. Will you be talking about the role of uh, psychedelics, for example, in in creating that sense of awe and the inspiration, how sort of the psychedelic movement combined with technology in Silicon Valley has given rise to the whole technological revolution? Is that something you're looking at? Yeah, you know, in fact... Uh, at Berkeley, we are just launching the Berkeley Psychedelic Research Center. You know, we have Michael Pollan and mm. Alison Gopnik and me and uh, a few others, Michael Silver, um, to try to understand scientifically what psychedelics do. Um, you know, we know what they do. Um, <clears throat> uh, we know what they do phenomenologically, just how they change our lives and give us a sense of connecting to vast things that we can't describe. And then uh, Roland Griffiths um, did early work on the clinical implications of psychedelics, just helping handle anxiety and so forth that have really opened up the field. And then our work will really get at this idea that the, the core of psychedelics is awe, uh, is like this sense of pattern and interconnectedness and the self dies and, and everything that can come out of that. Um, there are, so there it's the psychedelics, you know, I mean, it's one of the most important things to happen culturally. Again, <laughs> it's been happening for thousands of years in indigenous peoples. Uh, but you know, it's, it's really important right now in this moment when we grapple with, you know, why do SSRIs not work that well? How do we handle people with PTSD? How do we help them find meaning? And I think psychedelics are going to change that. So absolutely. Our next big move. Good. When you set off to write a book about awe, are there a set of questions that you will set out to answer? Yeah, you know, so um, the first question, you know, and it's, it's interesting. It, it, uh, I started to write this book, uh, sadly, when my younger brother died. Uh, he died of a colon cancer. Um, and it was, he and I had shared everything together. So it was a very tough, it was a complicated death and it was a very tough loss. 
Um, and the, when he was, um, his life was ending, we were all around him. And I had this awe experience, you know, and it was, I felt like there was light and patterns and I felt like there were forces that he was moving into. Uh, and I'm a reductionist in some sense and a materialist and, uh, you know, atheist. And I was like, what is that? You know, why in this moment of profound loss would I feel the sacred and reverence? And that really led me to start writing this book. It's, you know, I have enough data, but I wasn't ready uh, quite career-wise. And I think the first question is, is like, well, what is it, right? What, how do I, you know, and it's interesting because in the world of mysticism and psychedelics, you know, Chris, people are like, I can't describe what happened. You know, it's, it's, it's so complex. So first we have to like, how does science describe this? And then the second question is why, you know, why in our evolution as a, a hominid, did we develop this emotion? And then third is like, how can I, you know, in a moment of grief or a period of grief that I'm still in, find, you find off and recapture what life was about uh, absent my brother, who he and I hiked together and traveled together, went to Mexico together, swam in the ocean together. He was kind of an awe par partner. So those are what I'm trying to answer is what is it and why and how do we get it? That, that story, uh, the story of the origins of the book that you're recounting makes me think about the fact that the word awful has always confused me. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, somehow it's become negative, but my sense is the origins must have been wonderful and awful meant the same thing, full of awe, right? <clears throat> but also that yeah, awe I, is not necessarily blissful. It can also be whatever it is. I'm, I'm in a town right now, Kyle and Aaron, in this little town. It's the only place in North America that has a permit to do open air cremations. Um, but it's, uh, I attended this open air cremation. The woman had died of MS. She was a resident of the town. And so her friends and her family were there and there's a pyre out in the desert. It was early morning at dawn and, you know, why her children lit the fire mm. and then spoke about their mother for a while. And then her friends came up and spoke and it was, whatever those words are, awe-inspiring, awful, wonderful. It was full of, of things beyond description. Yeah. Um, but I've had the same experience. My father died about a year and a half ago, and I had the same thing. It was horrible, but it was yeah. so, there was, it was so real that it was also nourishing. I don't know if, yeah. if that yeah. gets to what you're, you're trying to explain there, but like we live in such a plastified bullshit world that anything that strips that away is, is amazing. Yeah, no, it, it, you know, the, to your first point, Chris, like the etymology of awe comes out of ninth century uh, Norse of Agi, which meant fearful dread uh, and a little bit of wonder. Right. And when you think about the ninth century, and what humans were facing in terms of plagues and early death, short life expectancies, a lot of violence. Um, the world was full of horror, right? And they had this word. And then as we've evolved culturally, we have gradually reduced the horrors of living. Children don't mm -hmm. die young. We have a much lengthened life expectancy, less violence. Uh, there's still a lot of horror. And, and, and we've 
we've built back in the positive dimensions of awe of like, you know, wonder and, you know, goose tingling curiosity back to what awe is. Even our relationship to nature, you know, um, it, you know, in the last three, 400 years, we've gotten outdoors, right? We used to hear things. And um, so the words really have changed. And that's why awful is confusing. And yeah, you know, what strikes me, um, one of our human universals in awe is life and death. And the obvious one is, wow, you see a child born, and you're like, geez, one minute there was one person, now there are two. And that's awe. <laughs> that's and, and dying, you know. <laughs> you know, yeah. dying, a lot of people have Chris's experience of, I was, you know, I remember one woman told me, like, <clears throat> I had this beloved sister, she got cancer, you know, went through this process of hospice, and I was holding her hand when she died, and then I could feel the life go. And it was awesome, you know. And I think, I think what it tells us is humans, horror is different than awe. So genocides and bo- piles of bodies at holocausts, you know, at Nazi concentration camps, those may astonish you, but they're horrifying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but once you get into the other realm and you move away death, things get awesome, right? Like where does, you know, what is a life and where does it go? Um, So a lot of, I think it's one of the great mysteries is what you just described, Chris. It's like, why does the mind do that when we face death? Can you talk about your role um, working with prisoners and the Sierra Club to um, get them out into nature? Yeah, you know, thanks for asking about that. there, there are two different things, you know, so the first is uh, the Sierra Club. Um, in fact, I'm writing about a guy in my book named Stacy Bear, who was a um, veteran who came back and a lot like a lot of our veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq was really struggling, drinking too much, uh, suicidal. Um, and he talks about it openly. And he his buddy got him out rock climbing in Colorado and it changed his life. It transformed him. And he called me up and he's like, man, there's this Berkeley guy who's studying awe. You know, this is the key for veterans. Veterans are often like really courageous and adventure oriented. They're young, they're physical, right? Uh, They like to throw their bodies into stuff and they're being handed SSRIs and cocktails, right? Which is not going well. Um, and Stacy called me up and he's like, Hey man, I work at the Sierra club. I lead tens of thousands of people outdoors on, on, uh, uh, outdoors trips, including veterans and under-resourced teens who are poor and don't get to camp. So we did this study of, of veterans and teens rafting. <laughs> Ironically enough on the river that I grew up on the American river where I used to raft as a high school kid with my brother. And we found my favorite finding in that, you know, we, we measure saliva before and after we got GoPro cameras, we filmed them. So we measured their, they're like, woo, you know, <laughs> we've got all of that. We have a paper on that and, um, or like, whoa, or screaming. And, but, um, veterans show a 32% drop in PTSD symptoms for a week after a day rafting. I mean, you can't, you know, 
you try to move a veteran's PTSD, right? You know, like that, man. That is like, take that to the bank. Uh, the and then, and the, sorry, sorry. The, did no. the veterans and the teens go together on these trips, or were they separate trips? That, that was a, that's a great question, and you know, they, we really worked hard to curate the trips, um, and the veterans went together separate from the teens. In part, Chris, because some of our veterans, we had one guy, we had one guy who was homeless, you know, as a lot of veterans, there are 700,000 homeless in the United States that'll rise because of COVID, you know, and so, and then one of our veterans was from Vietnam. And so getting on a river, they, we had a lot of kind of guidance and therapy right there because it was hard. And, and then the teens were crazy, you know, the, one of my undergrads who ran the trip, his name Christoph Green, and he grew up homeless, uh, and then went to Berkeley, graduated, doing really well. He's six five. He looks like a linebacker, and he's got this big dreadlock. And I was like, "What was it like to do the study?" And he had never been camping. It's like God, it was amazing. But I had to break up splash fights amongst these teenagers. <laughs> so we had a special approach to the teenagers because <laughs> right. they were teenagers, you know. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned measuring uh, things like saliva before and after a trip like this. Can you dig in a little bit more to how you conduct one of these experiments? Thank you for asking that. You know, and this one, this one was hard, you know, so, uh, so we got our, you know, veterans and teenagers, and that took a lot of work. Uh, We've got our river, right, that we're going to, a chunk of the American river, we've checked out and then GoPro gave us a bunch of cameras. So we mounted the cameras on rafts. So now we've got like 10 rafts, GoPro, GoPro cameras. We, got, we filmed them. And the, I feel like the, um, the key there, you know, it, just to give your audience a sense of science, like, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, hey, you're a big, sur- big wave surfer. What's it like for you on the waves? And they say, oh, I, I feel off, right? Okay, kind of obvious. Um, it's another thing to show when you're surfing or rafting, your physiology changes. And my lab has done a lot of work on how awe, our focus today, activates the vagus nerve, which is this bundle of nerves that makes you strong. Awe reduces the inflammation in the body, which is part of your immune system. They're little proteins that attack pathogens in your body that are good. But if you're always inflamed, you're really vulnerable to, you know, like the plastified life that Chris referred to makes your body inflamed. We lose touch with nature and that's bad news for your health. So we, in this particular study, given that orientation, number one is we gathered saliva. (laughs) You know, you got these teenagers arriving at the river and my experience, we bought a special fridge, right? And the teenager, okay, great. Welcome to the study. Now spit into this vial, right? They like spit. <laughs> it's for <laughs> and by the way, Yeah. By the way, like getting enough spit is hard, right? You got like, you know, <laughs> so we got that. And then the, you know, if I showed you footage, you know, and maybe you could post it on your web, your, for the show. Um, you know, it's one thing like, oh, I felt awe during the rafting trip. It's another thing when you got them on camera and they're going like, whoa, as they ride through the meat grinder and all these rapids and almost crash into rocks. So saliva, self-report measures, 
to start the study, film them during the rafting trip, and then we follow them up online on their smartphones one week after, like, hey, how are you doing? Are you stressed? Is your sleep disrupted? Are you PTSD? We put that all together and we can get a sense of like, what does a day on the river do to you for you, right? And what we find is you show a lot of awe in the voice and the face, your cortisol changes, you become, you emerge with other people in your raft in terms of physiology, it starts to resemble, you're like, wow, man, we're part of this team. And that all predicts less PTSD a week later, right? So it just gives us a feel of what it's really like. Do you, can you talk, uh, you know, I've quoted you, I've written two books and I've cited you in both of them. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> you. You know what it's like, right? Um, uh, the first book is about human sexuality and prehistory, which doesn't nice. seem to have a lot of, of overlap with your work, but I, I found ways. And the second one is called Civilized to Death that just came out in October, um, nice. which is sort of a reassessment of the, the cost-benefit analysis of civilization, right? Are we actually yeah. better off than hunter-gatherers and in which ways? Mm. And sort of re-examining a lot of the mythology um, or the, I hate to use the word mythology to uh, imply falsity, but, you know, the 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 bias, the pro-status quo bias in examining hunter-gatherers. And I know so much of your work looks at those same questions. Can you... Uh, just talk about some of your studies, like the monopoly study. Like I have a whole section in civilized to death called rich asshole syndrome, where I argue that it's yeah. not just that assholes become rich because they're willing to cut corners that more ethical people aren't. Yeah. It's also that uh, wealth disparities force us to develop almost like a spiritual scar tissue that deadens us to the pain of other people to enable yeah. us to continue to live in this unnatural situation. I, I cited your monopoly study, your study of the expensive cars stopping less often than the, I mean, your work is so good at illuminating those things. I wonder if you could just des describe some of those studies, but also the yeah. greater sense that I have that your, a lot of your work is really um, very subversive. You're teaching at a major university, but you're you're questioning some of the fundamental principles of Western civilization. Wow, I should travel with you more often, Chris, because that's quite a and and congratulations on your book. I really like I know about your first book, and I look forward to reading your next one too. Um, Thanks. Yeah, so you know, and 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 what a what a, an important summary. So, um, you know, it it. Uh, it begins, you know, the work begins with a um, really interesting thing that happened to me as a kid <clears throat> where, and I wrote about this at the end of this book, The Power Paradox, where um, I, my, I was living, it was 1970, and my mom got her PhD, and she was our family breadwinner, and she taught at Sacramento State University, um, big public university. And we moved from a middle-class neighborhood in Los Angeles. And because my parents were hippies, uh, which is why I'm subversive um, in part, uh, they, um, we moved to this town where we got five acres and a beat-up old house. And it was in one of the poorest towns in, um, 
in Northern California. Uh, and um, the kids I grew up in, you know, I, I was fifth grade when I started there. They just seemed like they were sick and had trouble concentrating. And you go to their homes and, you know, sometimes it felt a little like Appalachia. Uh, I'm not sure they were eating well. A kid came over to our uh, and played on our jump swing, our jump, our swing where you would jump off. My brother and I had done it a thousand times and he did it. And the second time he did it, his arm snapped in half. Um, and I was like, you know, I started to do this work on power that Chris is, and I'll get to it in a second. And, and it just pushed me backward. Like, why were all the kids I moved to suddenly like sick and not going to college and maybe not graduating and turning to opiates early and crystal meth and tough, right? And, and it's because of uh, capitalism and our society and rich assholes. Um, and, one, and then when I was teaching, uh, a paper came out in 1994 that showed that poor people die earlier of every disease uh, compared to wealthy people. And it's so striking. If I'm a seven on a 10-point scale and, and my neighbor's an eight and we go to the same doctor and we eat the same food and we do the same exercise, he's going to live longer than me, right? Just by this sense of rank. And Chris, that led me to this work. And the first thing that was striking, like when you study hunter-gatherer peoples who, with whom we evolved for 200,000 years, they didn't have rich assholes, right? They constrained them. They were much more egalitarian. Um, they, if you were grabbing too much food, they would, people would correct you, right? And, and really inequality in the United States really hits hard in the 70s and just explodes, right? So now we have, you know, I mean, Trump's family is the idea that Jared Kushner, <laughs> who bought his way, in, his dad bought his way into Harvard, I'm not sure even we even went to class, the idea that he would be making these decisions is offensive. Um, and so our job then was to, to really capture, like, how do, does wealth and inequality, like you're saying, Chris, does it produce assholes or unethical behavior? And my favorite study is the car study, where I, I was biking home and coming through a four-way stop sign, and this black Mercedes that was worth 150000 bucks like rolls the stop sign at 25 miles an hour, you know, I'm going uphill, turns almost into me. We're like face to face. And he gets really mad at me. And I'm like, dude, mm. I was following the law, man. You almost killed me. I'm on a bike and you're getting mad at me. So we did the car study. And what happens in that study is, <laughs> uh, and it's Paul Piff's genius, who is my collaborator, who's now a professor at Irvine. Um, we put an undergrad. Everybody has car stories, right? And, and I'll talk about it in just a second, you know. And you're just like, cars. By the way, like, people dying in cars. is, is so it's, Over 100,000 people die each year, I think, in cars. A lot of people hurt their bodies in cars. We, it shortens our lives, traffic, et cetera, California. So... We put an undergrad at the edge of a pedestrian zone in, yeah, near our Berkeley campus. And that uh, crosses the street. It's white stripes. It's California law. You have to stop, right? 
And we have another Berkeley undergrad hiding behind this bush. And they make sure that if a car's coming, they note what kind of car it is. And there's our other person like looking like they want to cross the pedestrian zone. And we just ask, do they stop? It's the law, right? 100% of drivers of poor cars stop. And once you get up to the fancy cars, BMW, like really expensive cars, 46% of the time they drive through the pedestrian zone, right? And I know that is it. <laughs> I can see you getting you're mad already. This, you're doing this study in Berkeley. So even yeah. the wealthy people in Berkeley are probably uh, consider themselves progressive. They've got their you know shopping bags in the back of the car. They recycle, right? Do oh you yeah. Think it would be. I mean, if you did this study in in uh, you know Los Angeles, you know Culver City, just some random uh, area, not Berkeley, I'll bet the the percentages would be even more dramatic. Yeah, that's really cool. I had never. I had no one's ever brought that up. That what about the Berkeley effect? I mean, it's even stronger in Berkeley, where we're supposed to be progressive, and uh, and um, so I agree, and and that was the tip of the iceberg. And so, you know, we did all these studies, and you know, you give you give a, a well-to-do person it they're playing a game as part of an experiment. This is my fa- other favorite one. I love I that one. Yeah. yeah, they're playing this game. You press a button, it rolls a bunch of dice on a computer. And you get a score. And if you get a high score, you get to win some money. And, and so we keep track. We know what their score is going to be. And we find out, do they cheat? <laughs> Rich people are more likely to cheat to win a little bit of money. Now, think about that economically, which you may be like, you already got enough money. You don't need 20 bucks, you know, and you're cheating. Yeah. Uh, so we did a lot of these studies. And, you know, I believe... Um, I wish I, I wish I would have known how to write this. You know, um, I think this is one of the fundamental problems of our our society right now: is cheating, is is corruption, is the gaming of the systems that most of us hope are fair. You know, mm-hmm. and by rich people, and you can't. You know, the this has replicated in countries around the world. It has all kinds of other extensions, and I think it's a central problem in our country that is hard to fight. It's interesting that you brought up the 1970s. Um, there's a great documentary called Requiem for an American Dream. It's a oh, wow. Chomsky documentary. And he talks nice. about how in the 60s you had this fiercely democratization. You know, you had a lot of young, typically apathetic people out in the streets demanding change. And um, Chomsky talks about how in the 1970s, one thing that he didn't, predict was the blowback and deregulation from the establishment you get into um, the savings and loans crises the reagan administration and then all of a sudden you have much more inequality and that just continues to ramp up until today you know thank you for bringing that up and i mean part of what got me to social class and inequality was Chomsky and Marx and, and old Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saz, his Berkeley collaborator. And, you know, Chris was heading towards one of the fallouts of this, right, which is how do we think about human beings and our contemporary world and what's our natural state? And part of my work is to call a lot of that into question, right, that, you know, rational choice theory and economics and Ronald Reagan and Milton Friedman would say greed is good, 
and we love competition and we just want as much for ourselves compared to other people. And there are dozens of studies that blow that to pieces, right? Um, that we want material goods it, it, and that's not a path to happiness. So the, this work on the rich asshole syndrome, which has been replicated in every kind of social behavior you would care about. One of my favorites is if you watch people at work, uh, well-to-do managers are more likely to swear at their colleagues and tell them their work mm. is chicken shit than vice versa, than low, less you know, well-to-do uh, employees. It's part of a whole mix, an ideological mix that Chris was pointing to and you nicely bring up, Kyle, of like, hey, let's have unfettered greed in capitalism. And that really was for a subset of people and, and we know what it does to them. I think your microphone has slipped into your shirt. You might want to just. <laughs> oh no! Yeah. Okay. There you go. <laughs> it's not terrible, but it was a little a little rub. Um, you, you know, you you're you're referring to Ayn Rand, probably. I, I know you've you've written about her a little bit. She's yeah. sort of like the the supreme apologist for uh, this this kind of self. She wrote a book called "In Defense of Selfishness," I think, or an essay. Oh. Um, yeah. I was briefly. I, you know, like a lot of people, I briefly sort of read some of her stuff in high school when I was convinced I'd never die and everyone should just look out for themselves and my parents were paying all my bills. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I think you and I are roughly the same age, maybe. Did you, were you into Rush at any, at any point in your life? A little little flurry in my senior year in high school. <laughs> yeah, right. So Ayn Rand, like one of their records, Neil Parrott was reading Ayn Rand, and they, there are some songs that were sort of based on that. Um, but like Alan Greenspan was her acolyte, right? Like know, he sat at, literally sat at her feet, and then he ran the U.S. economy for 20 years. It's, it's just incredible how that stuff works. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, Paul Ryan, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. For people who don't know who's Ayn Rand, yeah. and I wrote down a quote um, from her, which is, for any civilization to survive, it is the morality of altruism that men must reject. Yeah. Which yeah, is so the opposite Rand, of true. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's how we, it's why we're here today, is our yeah. cooperative tendencies. Yeah, you know, the, um, the, you know, Ayn Rand, very influential libertarian philosopher, kudos to her, um, shaped Greenspan, Reagan, um, you know, Dick Cheney, uh, Paul Ryan, Donald Trump is a fan on down the line. Um, and, you know, I, you know, the philosophy of freedom and self-expression and don't rely on other people, um, parts of it are great, right? And, and I try to always remember, you know, there are good sides to many things. Um, and the idea of freedom, and you know, it's interesting, Chris, like when you're 18 to really dwell in the philosophy of like, go out on your own, that's wonderful, right? That's American transcendentalism, it's Emerson, Thoreau, yeah. we need that, but it's a lie, you know, it is a lie to think that you make it on your own. Uh, it is a lie to think that we can reject altruism. The people who do it are probably much more likely to be supported by governmental policies you know, and, and resources. And I think COVID-19, which we're in the midst of, is is revealing that. It's like a big x-ray that is saying, look at all the systems that allow my health to stay good uh, or me to do my work at home when the poorer person has to drive the bus and is more vulnerable to COVID. So, yeah, you know, and, and Chris, to your point, like, 
chi is related to this set of ideas that humans are selfish, competitive, adversarial, and greedy. And that's our core motivation. And in my book, Born to be Good, and then all the science we do on the brain and genetics and behavior says about 40% of the time we're ready to share everything, right? We will share 40% of a resource. Big parts of our brain help us do that. And it's good for your life expectancy and your reproductive opportunities. So I, if I had, if I were a different kind of scholar, I, I remember I was on vacation with a friend and I was like, the book I would love to write is how, you know, why Ayn Rand is the most stupid philosopher who's ever <laughs> So thank you for bringing that up. But I, I'm not that person yeah. right there. Well, that's me. I, I, my, both of my books are refutations of what I call the neo-Hobbesian perspective, right? Which Ayn Rand is obviously just a sort of modern yeah. uh, articulation of that. But that, that famous quote that life before the state was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short yeah. is wrong, 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 wrong. It's wrong in every possible way. And yet it's one of the most powerful lines in the English language. It's amazing. Do you ever think really... that the... Go ahead, go ahead. No, it'd be interesting to take all these sayings that, like the, that, and just say, here's how it's all wrong. I mean, it'd be a, that'd be a neat book. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's essentially Civilized to Death is organized that way. I, that's how okay. I introduce it. Like, this book cool. is going to show you Hobbes was totally wrong. Um, but do you ever think that the utility of an idea is at least as determinative of its power and, and ubiquity as the, the, the you know, the, the clarity of thought? In other words, yeah. you know, Darwin wrote about love a lot more than he wrote about competition, but Darwinian competition has been co-opted as sort of a central justification for ruthless capitalism. Yeah. 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 That's really, you know, I mean, I think that there are a couple of things to unpack there. One is their ideas are promoted through institutions that have ideologies. And Darwin did not, as you nicely just put it, Chris, he was not survival of the fittest. He was survival of the kindest. And that comes straight yeah. out of the descent of man from 1871. Uh, and no one knows that, right? And everybody thinks he said it's, it's survival of the superior. He didn't say that, you know? Um, and then the other thing you're right is, you know, um, there is interesting work about virality. And virality tends to like fake news and, you know, and, and, you know, uh, gore and violence and stuff. And it, it's, it, we've, you know, the more dramatic, even untrue, disturbing kinds of claims can spread pretty powerfully. And, and we're at battle against that tendency. Man, you make me worry now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. That's what happens when you hang out with Chris long Sorry. enough. Sorry. <laughs> Your Pollyannish tendencies <laughs> blow away with the wind. I know. Yeah. Dang. We're in trouble. Ayn Rand's going to win. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you brought up fake news, and I, I uh, know that you've worked with a ton of different organizations and really promote the idea of subordinates being able to critique people in power. And journalism is one of those, um, you know, the, the estates that we have that is the mechanism of it is to be able to critique power. Um, yeah. Can you talk specifically about that as well as um, organizations that you've seen that really set up a structure where critiquing power is encouraged? 
Yeah, you know, it, um, poof, you know, uh, the, you know, um, when I wrote about power, um, probably guided by a lot of what Chris was hinting at, which is, you know, for several hundred thousand years, as we evolved in these small hunter-gatherer groups, power was really negotiated, right? And it was contested and distributed in a more horizontal way. That's Christopher Baum reviewing 48 different societies. And one of the things that they were really sophisticated at is the critique of the powerful. And they would do it in telling jokes and gossiping, the, the informal structures by which we rein in the abuse of power. Hey, you know, some guy's bragging and you tease him about his bragging or he eats too much food and, and you tease him about that. And that really led to, alongside ethics and morals, like um, the, it, it is the foundation of critique, of social critique. And it was built into the structure that low power people who are always stronger in number than high power individuals could critique. And then you see that develop into journalism in the 18th century and uh, local newspapers who made fun of the wealthy, right? And so forth. Um, and, and satire and Jonathan Swift and just everything good. And so to me, you know, that's one of the healthy markers of, of, of a healthy power society or a society that has healthy power. You know, you go to Russia or China. Um, I was on the equivalent of 60 Minutes in China, which for, for at this conference, it was a joke. It was not even journalism, you know. So absolutely. And um, I think, you know, like when, um, you know, institutions rate, the U.S. is now a fragile democracy. It used to be a strong democracy. Um, and, and part of the reason is the, the degradation of journalism, right, and the attack on it. And that's one of the most scary things about Trump. So I think we, it's, it's foundational, um, and it, it is at risk right now, you know, because of the digital technologies. Um, I worked, I consulted at Facebook for six years prior to the big blow up, uh, and I was... I was struck at that that they couldn't take a more firm stand on on bad rhetoric. <laughs> they just wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't take that step. Whereas it's funny, we all, like if we were all part of a group and there's a person over there that's spewing bile and fake news, we'd be like, hey, man, that's not true, you know, uh, and we would negotiate that. Facebook didn't take that step. Right, which was too bad. So I think it's precious, Kyle, and I'm really glad you're bringing it up. And uh, do you have any examples of organizations that you've worked with that um, set up a structure where they really encourage critique or any kind of specific tactics that you've noticed as shining examples? Well, you know, it's so, it's so interesting to me, and, and I would love, it'd be, the, I mean, this is, a, so the first and, and I don't want to, you know, is science. And what people don't realize is science goes through blind peer review. And what that means is every paper I publish gets, on average, 20 single-space pages of what an idiot I am and how wrong this idea is and what a simplistic, simple-minded idea. And, and it is 
we contest things, right? Hey, that's and... what Chris does for me every day. <laughs> He is Mr. Blind Peer Review. He just does it in a verbal diatribe, not written word. <laughs> but, you know, when you think about it, just think about that for a second, right? Like any idea you want to put out there, um, how much oversight that puts into your peers' hands. And, and, and that's why science is making a lot of progress. We're making extraordinary progress. And there are facts and there are things that we can trust, right? Um, medicine is another like when you really get down to, um, in particular, everyday healthcare, they evaluate each other's um, performance. Patients evaluate doctors, right? So there are a lot of data and separate opinions on how well you're doing thing. Uh, you go to other realms and you don't have that, right? Which is interesting. You don't have peer review. So, so I would cite those two. I think sports are interesting. Um, sports have a ton of data in them and they're getting better. You know, there's no, you know, uh, we have a ton of data. It's a fairly meritocratic system of wherever the best people will rise for the most part. Um, and performance is better and, and teams are better. So I, I think it's a great question to be thinking about with respect to our systems. It's very hard, as Michael Lewis has revealed, to get peer review of financial commodities. You, know, you just read of, my mind. I was going to ask you if you knew Michael Lewis, because I know he lives in Berkeley. I do. And he's you mentioned one of, the sports and the analysis. He's he's great. He's fucking yeah. But, and when you ask him, like his analysis, yeah. I'm, he's a dear friend. And when you like when you read his book, The Big Short, and you're like, how did these people create these collateralized debt swaps <laughs> that bankrupt that cost millions of jobs and hurt millions of families? And there was no peer review of those products. And had they been submitted to a group of people and say, is this a good thing? People are like, this is ridiculous, right? So it's interesting to think about where we, where peers can critique us and where they can. Well, also, I agree with what you said about science, but I, I, I think it's nuanced because if you submitted that to a bunch of investment uh, bankers, they would say, this is a great product. It takes money from a whole bunch of people and gives it to us. That's what we're in the business of doing. Perfect product. Right. And in, in medicine, so yeah. often, you know, yeah. a product is tested and it's no better than placebo. And so that information is never published I because agree. the research yeah. is sponsored by the company. So they don't publish it until they get the results they want. You know, yeah. it's, it's thanks, like that money is corroding not only our political system, but even our scientific systems. Yeah. And, you know, thanks. Absolutely, Chris. And, you know, um, and you are nicely engaging in exactly what we're talking about, right? Which is let's, let's scrutinize ideas and claims with reason. So I just said science, but there are biases in scientific evaluation. There are hidden findings, et cetera. There's probably status effects of, well, we treat women's papers differently than men's, et cetera. Mm. Uh, medicine has tons of, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is shrouded in <laughs> hidden findings. And so, yeah. And, and the, you know, I, I don't know what you guys think, but like, I feel in some sense, while there's a lot of junk and fake news, at the same time, um, all of the digital exchange and flow of information, it, it allows for critiques, right, uh, that, that can make, you know, 
when I go give a public talk now, I've been told like somebody will tweet like, oh, the guy got it wrong. He, you know, Dacker got this wrong or whatever. So there is more opportunity for public scrutiny. I think the, ch- the challenge is what, what you're pointing to, which is it has to be done in principled fashion, you know, and, and that's where yeah. it's I think um, one of the, you know, Kyle referred to my sort of uh, uh, dark worldview uh, earlier. <laughs> which Can't is, wait to read this. I mean, I'm civilized to death. Dude, yeah, you'll, you'll weep. Um, but I, uh, you know, the way I see, I'm sort of like having a really good time at the party on the Titanic as it's sinking. Right. But, uh, I'm still having fun. Right. Um, but I wonder what you think about, uh, to follow up on your point, I think that podcasts are possibly, and this is self-serving, but I think they're possibly as impactful as the printing press. In the yeah. sense that, you know, we can talk to anybody we want who's willing to sit down and talk to us using any language we want and press a button and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people can listen to that or millions if yeah. Joe Rogan happens to be in the room. And uh, that's amazing. There's no there's no gatekeeper. There's nobody between us and the audience, uh, which I think is truly revolutionary. Yeah, no, it's, I think there's 700,000 podcasts in the United States. Um, and I think I, that would be a cool book, right? Because it is profoundly revolutionary in being local, right? Like big wave surfing is a spectacular phenomenon. It probably doesn't make the newspaper, you know, people are reporting on the local softball team scores, but not the big wave surfing score. Surfing you only know, if someone game. gets eaten by a shark. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's off the if radar. Joe Rogan's, if, if Joe Rogan's in the room for podcasting, or if a shark is in the room for big wave surfing. <laughs> <laughs> so it has this wonderful local organic feel, and that's why it is the you know it's one of the most important things in journalism right now. It may mm-hmm. probably the most important. And for me, you know, we've got the science of happiness. Um, and podcast, which has done well. Uh, and what, um, what's been exciting for me, you know, to your point, Chris, is like, I've been teaching the science of happiness. I have my certain frustrations with it. It's not diverse. It doesn't deal with social justice. It doesn't mention Noam Chomsky like we did today. And I'm like, man, if I, and I'm hearing it from young people. Uh, and I'm like, if I have this podcast, I'm going to have prisoners on and have ex-prisoners I'm going to have people who are junkies, et cetera, to get at mm. the local kind of quality that, that, so I think, I think I, they are exciting and uh, a great new venue. And it's an antidote to, to that plastification that we were talking about before. You know, yeah. I think a lot of people have grown up with everything being filtered and test marketed and, you know, it's just so it reeks of of inauthenticity that yeah. if they hear somebody, even if they disagree, but they hear someone just giving it straight there, the <laughs> pendulum is starting to swing. People are so hungry for that now, I think. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. My daughter, who's just graduated from Berkeley, is 22, Natalie. And, and you know, she loves podcasts um, and it's part of the podcast generation like young people. And you have regular voices yeah. and grammatical problems and, you know, you know, just drama and so forth. And when she looks at, you know, the television and our talking heads, she's just like, 
you know, come yeah. on. So yeah. I hear you. Podcasts. I wouldn't. Yeah, here's to podcasts. Um, I wonder, just to follow up on this point you were making about, um, you know, skepticism and, and that Kyle was yeah. asking about daring to challenge power structures and so on. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder what you think about so-called conspiracy theories, flat earthers, anti-vaxxers, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Because I, I find it very problematic because I applaud the skepticism. You know what I mean? Like question Absolutely. what the government tells you. You know, the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident was bullshit. You know, a lot, all this stuff is bullshit. But then it, how do you I mean, are people still teaching critical thinking? Like, is, is there a mandatory critical thinking class at Berkeley? There's a lot of critical thinking at Berkeley, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, I think universities do a good job of that. Um, the one of my favorite findings in social science is called the Flynn effect which is people are getting smarter um, compared to where we were in terms of handling information. We may not be living as well, uh, but we know how to handle information better. Knowledge is getting better. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you, Chris, and we should go have a beer sometime, man. Cause you know, I grew up, <laughs> I grew up skeptical of, I read Noam Chomsky, you know, and then, and our mainstream media, even the hallowed New York times has tons of ideological bias, right? Good luck ever reading a pro-Palestinian piece in that and there, you know, I grew up, uh, thanks to my mom, very skeptical of pharmaceuticals. Um, and she was right. The SSRIs, there are a lot of data that uh, call into question pharmaceutical approaches to mental health. Um, and now we have a weird convergence of that in the anti-vaxxers, which is don't trust government, don't trust mainstream portrayals of vaccines and and I hope I hope the broader public will will have independent science like you suggest and we'll see where it lands right because because probably we need the vaccines and uh, yeah no so it's it's just fascinating right now that the liberal critique of 30 years ago Noam Chomsky you know Vietnam and protest and so and corporate greed and so forth has now been turned upon <laughs> uh, political leaders by Trump supporters. <laughs> you know, I've even thought of it in terms of economics. Um, I haven't I haven't talked about this yet on the podcast, but I was thinking recently how, you know, there's a very strong strain of do your own thing in the hippie movement, right? Like, yeah. if it feels good, do oh. it. I remember a T-shirt with a bear rubbing his back on a tree and it said, if it feels good, do it. And you know, there's this all like, hey, man, I'm an individual. I'm going to do what's good for me. Look out for number one. You know, all these slogans from back in the late 60s, early 70s. Okay. And like that sort of transformed into Reaganite, trickle down economics, you know, get the government off my back. It's strange how like the far left and the far right kind of meet somewhere in there. You know, man, so... And I hate, to, I, I'm going to use the word, but patriarchy, right? And they're like feminist critiques of the 70s. Ruth Rosen, in particular, who's a professor at Davis, like a lot of the 60s kind of rebuilt patriarchy. And men had nice positions, they had more sexual freedom, right? They had women bringing coffee to them. They were the voices in the movements. Uh, and there was a patriarchal dimension to it outside of the feminist movement. 
of Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan and others. And, um, and it, it nicely transported right over to Reagan. It felt the same. Mm. Right. So yeah, really interesting. Really cool. Good. Can you talk, yeah. Can you talk about, um, the role that, um, equal rights between women and men have in healthy societies um, yeah. historically. And just yeah. watch your microphone because it's kind of scratching up against your shirt a little bit. Okay. Sorry. My apologies. I was, get, I was getting way too comfortable uh, <laughs> okay. lounging into <laughs> those out. observations. I know. Um, wow. I, we should all be in hammocks really right now. You know, <laughs> We should do a hammock podcast together. I'm not very new. I've got a theory. I don't know if you're, I don't mean to detract, uh, to jump in here, but uh, my theory is that the hammock is the first human invention. It's it's the first human technology because chimps and bonobos both weave branches together and sleep in them every night, right? Up above the ground, keep away from predators and so on that, you know, you're waving in the breeze. Wow. So I am, my, my whole philosophy of life goes back to the hammock. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to order one right now. Um, <laughs> Let us send you one. Swag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can swag for the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, Kyle. So I, um, you know, as you guys nicely um, mentioned, I did a lot of work on the abuse of power and class and inequality. Uh, wrote this book, The Power Paradox. It summed it up. And about when The Power Paradox was published... Um, Weinstein happened, uh, the Me Too movement, which I got involved in, I wrote and then got connected to women's groups. Um, and then the deeper question surfaced around that, which is, well, will organizations or will a nation uh, or will a, a community abuse power uh, depending on who's in charge, right? If it's a man or, or a greater representation of women. Uh, and what's interesting, and Hannah Rosen has written a little bit about this, but it, but this is this is one of the hottest topics in power, which is that women have more power now societally than they've had in fifteen thousand years. And you just go from the big transition to settlements, which became patriarchal twelve thousand years ago, through time that you know thirty percent of governors are women. The last election had the most women elected to Congress in history, I think. Um, you know, female vice president candidates, et cetera, re leading organizations. The one place where they're not uh, effectively represented is, is in the super high echelons of CEOs and hedge funds. But middle level managers, lawyers, doctors, it's all rising. And that begs the question of what happens with respect to power and the abuse of power. And some of the data suggests that with more women you and the greater equal distribution of power, you have less abuse. Um, there is a big McKinsey study and a big study by Credit Suisse looking at governments and companies with more women on boards, and they, they don't abuse power to the, quite the same extent. They take care of labor. So a lot of the income issues right now in the United States probably would be less extreme if women were making those decisions. So a little bit of hope. Uh, in this this uh, civilized to death world, do you think that the structures and the flow of power as they're established in corporations and and many governments 
are themselves reflective of patriarchy and, and the male. I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that men and women wield and understand power in different ways? And therefore, is it sufficient to have women in these positions? Because when I was writing Sex of Dawn, I, I was addressing the, the fact that most anthropologists would say there has never been a matriarchy. Yeah. Right. I was I was addressing the the idea that hunter gatherer men and women were both autonomous and had similar levels of power within the society. Right. And a lot of uh, mainstream theorists would say, but then why is there no matriarchy? And what I found was, well, there are societies in which property is passed from mother to daughter and women's voices are necessary to any decision. But that women, a matriarchy doesn't look like a patriarchy in the mirror. It's not a, you know, a flipped you don't have a woman with her her high heel on a man's throat the way you have men, you know, wielding power over women. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so great to hear you say that, because um, coming out, you know, I think Trump shocked a lot of people, you know, uh, not, you know, people who are reading the tea leaves in the Midwest. But and, you know, mm. you know, there's been endless analysis of him. Uh and his power and wow, you know, just kind of this bald self-interest and, you know, kind of Machiavellian, like just taking people down, et cetera. Uh, and coming out of that election, um, we, to answer your question, Chris, we developed, uh, people hadn't studied it rigorously and scientifically. There had been certain kinds of cultural analysis, but it hadn't really been addressed with data, if you will. And we've got a measure of like, how do you, what do you think about power and how do you use it? And there's more of a horizontalist approach of like, it's about collaboration and, you know, bi-directionality and it's distributed. And then there's the top down, like it's about force and coercion and, and violence. And men are way more likely to adhere to that second model of power, right? That international diploma, diplomacy is weak. You got to use force. Fathers should really rule the family. Teachers are okay to spank the kids, et cetera. Uh, and women are more likely to be more horizontal, right, and, and collaborative. So I think it's profound. And, and, and in the next 30 years, we'll see what happens to organizations because women are starting to run them. Do you, th do you think those differences are innate or, or culturally indoctrinated? I, you know, oh, man. That's a tough one. <laughs> um, I yeah. think, you know, there are certain, you know, when, you know, my last read of the violence literature, maybe, you know, more up to date data, Chris and Kyle, like 85, 90% of violence is male, you know, it's, and so you got to social relationships deal with that if you're a male. And, and so you learn how to use violence for power and counteract it. And, you know, mm -hmm. Women, you know, the there are cool data showing with birth, men have the neurophysiology of connection, uh, but it's very pronounced in women for a year or two of oxytocin and breastfeeding mm -hmm. and all that comes with that. That's a, you know, we don't like to say, but that is a very significant event uh, that shifts your body. So, you know, I'd say part of a you big, mentioned a chunk Sorry, is nature, ahead. a chunk is nature. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. You mentioned Christopher Bohm's work earlier, Hierarchy in the Forest is, is yeah. probably his best known book. Um, what I love about that is that he 
he does not say that humans are not hierarchical. He says yeah. that we developed very complex mechanisms for counteracting that tendency. Yeah. And most of those uh, mechanisms involve men uh, yeah. because men are more likely, I think, innately to try to take over and, and uh, inflict coercive power on others. And so, uh, yeah, people who are interested in those issues should really check his work out. He's fantastic. Yeah. And thanks for bringing that up, Chris, because it's subtle work, right? We often think of, like, power is either good or bad, right? Or hierarchies either exist or don't exist. There are hierarchies everywhere, right? That's a raw fact of social life. And what he says is, just like you're saying, like, healthy hierarchies are have these dynamic tensions, right? And bi-directional negotiations. So, here's and on the, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And Franz Duvall, I'm sure yeah. you're familiar with his work, yeah. showing that the impulse toward justice and the sort of aversion of injustice is something that's common to, uh, to all social primates. Yeah. So it's it's not something that's imposed by government. It comes out of us innately. Absolutely. Great. I love Franz. Yeah. Taka, this is my last question, then I'll let Chris wrap it up. But, um, okay. Regards to nuance and um, teaching the next generation more compassion, um, you talk about the benefits of exposing kids to suffering, which is um, something that people might, you know, <laughs> for, at first glance, not think is a good thing to do. Um, can you dig into that a little bit more? Yeah. Wow. I I appreciate. Um all of these questions and the scholarship behind them. And uh, yeah, you know, so the, as we, you know, my lab, I was sitting on a, a panel. I was lucky enough to have this experience with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Um, <clears throat> and he said, uh, just in a throwaway statement, compassion is our natural state. Um, and boy, does that fly in the face of Ayn Rand, whom we talked about earlier. We got to reject compassion and altruism. And I'm a scientist, and I heard that statement in 2003, I think. And I was like, I got to go after that with neurophysiology and science. And so we started to study human compassion in the, in the lab. And when you study compassion in the lab, you show people images of suffering, right? Starving children, uh, pets that are dying, kids with cancer classic stuff right and what we found and this is to your first point I, I mean as we started to summarize this literature on compassion parts of your prefrontal cortex are activated it activates the vagus nerve uh, which makes you feel good and strong and connected it activates oxytocin release uh, it has a gene that is related to oxytocin um, it makes you feel strong it makes you want to assist others it makes you be courageous these are all peer-reviewed scientific findings of what happens when I'm exposed to suffering. Uh, is just like we talked about earlier, how our capacity for awe is awakened when we encounter dying, right? It's horrific, but we our imagination gets going. And in the case of compassion, we want to make things better. Um, that science complemented just my everyday experience, like around the veterans, right, that when they were exposed to the most profound suffering I've heard of, uh, watching a bomb blow up a buddy, 
or a school kid, you know, watching the body die, they wanted to do better, right? They wanted to do things that were good for the world, just very routinely. And, and that led me to this kind of statement, like, you know, maybe we shield our kids from suffering, which is good, but maybe in their lives, they need to figure out what part of suffering they want to help, right? Uh, and I believe that to be true. And, you know, when I say goodbye to my Berkeley undergrads, one of the things I say is, like, find the form of suffering or injustice that you want to work on. Because Chris cites the work, Franz Duval, we get agitated when there's suffering and harm in others and injustice. We want to fix it. So find one. Uh, for me, it was, you know, veterans or getting into prisons and, and working with those guys. And, and go get it, you know. And a lot of the, you know, data suggests that's good news for people. And it's counterintuitive. It's painful for the eyes, but it's good for our souls. I read some research, it may have even been your research, um, showing that the number one predictor of life satisfaction and longevity is whether or not you feel that you're embedded in a caring community. Yeah. I mean, when I, you know, human happiness, uh, being in a caring community gives you 10 years of life expectancy. (laughs) Older people who volunteer are much less likely to die, right? I mean, it, there are just so many findings on this that, that, and this is where I'm so grateful that you guys brought up Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman and this horseshit of, you know, just go out and maximize self-interest because it countervails that. And that's, that's a malaise, right? That is a, a delusion that's been harmful to our society. Listen, we would love to dominate the rest of your uh, afternoon, but and vice uh, versa. being cooperative. <laughs> we, we like to be egalitarian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I just I want to thank you so much for doing this. And I want to thank Kyle so much for letting me uh, kind of horn in here because I've been doing the podcast a lot longer than he has. And when he mentioned that he had you as a guest, I, I'm sure he saw a look go over my face like, what the fuck? How did you get that guy? <laughs> That's fantastic. So thank Aww. both of you for letting me sit in on this. I, well, I love your writing. To bring it up in a, very, it, yeah. in a very laissez-faire way as well. Like, yeah, you know, I just got this guy on the podcast. He's like, what? I wrote about this guy in both my books. You can't use my yeah. Wi-Fi if I'm not involved. Um, well, <laughs> yeah. well, let's do it again. Well, hey, w- I would love to. Yeah. Well, hey, where can people check out your work and uh, what book? What books should they buy of yours? Yeah. So, them. so number one is greatergood.berkeley.edu, uh, which is all things greater good and a lot of the science. Then my books are the Power Paradox, uh, which we've talked about in Born to Be Good, and then I have a new book on awe. And Kyle, the other thing I'll just say is, as you know, I'm um, writing a book about awe have a lot of admiration for surfers, uh, have dear friends who are surfers, daughters a surfer. And if you have listeners who want to send me their stories of awe on big waves, um, I'm collecting stories of awe from around the world, uh, and they've been amazing. So send them my way at keltner at berkeley.edu. All right. Thank you uh, for listening to that. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, the, I, I was just listening to it um it's a fantastic conversation, fantastic people. 
Uh, but those fucking delays, those, those you know, technological spaces, um, they still bum me out. I'm still not used to it. I'm, so I'm really looking forward to getting in a room with Dacker and having a conversation that has the organic flow that you only get when you're occupying physical space together. Um, even if we have to wear masks, I don't care. Uh, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's uh, something that, uh, I miss, but, uh, I'm going to go record a video Roma right now. Uh, actually I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to do it exactly where I'm sitting, but I guess I'm leaving this virtual space I'm occupying with you. Uh, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by absolutely no one except you and your friends who support the podcast through my website or on Patreon. Some people are still uh, on Patreon and I appreciate that very much. I'm transitioning to an independent platform as you know, uh, and it's just a, a gift based, uh, you know, from through the generosity of your heart, uh, if you can afford it and if you can't afford it, it doesn't matter. It's, uh, you're welcome at the party anyway, eat, drink, and be merry. All right. I'm going to leave you as I normally do with my mom talking about the various things that she's got to send you. Mom, by the way, is doing well. Uh, for those of you who are wondering, she, uh, she's 80. So, uh, this whole coronavirus thing is an issue and we mutually decided it probably made sense for me not to go and visit, um, you know, between Colorado and, um, the trip. Um, it's hard to see your mom and not give her a hug, uh, especially my mom. So, uh, we're in touch. We talk a lot and, uh, she's doing well and she really enjoys the notes that some of you send her when you order things. Um, people have often just said there's a little comment section and then they say nice things to her and she always gets a kick out of that and forwards them to me and says, Oh, your listeners are so nice. And, um, so anyway, if you're going to order a t-shirt or whatever, uh, drop mom a note she's really her name's julie and uh, she's always happy to hear from you so here she is followed by the great carsey blanton reminding you of your own mortality and mine and uh, that of everyone and everything that we know it's part of the design you're gonna die one day all right people love y'all catch you soon okay mom uh, tell people what they can order from the garage Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got Beer Cozies. Or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you 
just because I want to And what's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say to the ground 